Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Nina Power. Nina Power is a cultural critic, social theorist, philosopher, author, and translator. Her upcoming book, What Men Want, is forthcoming later this year. We discuss the works of Roman Catholic priest, theologian, philosopher, and social critic Ivan Illich, covering some of his most famous works, such as Deschooling Society, Medical Nemesis, and Tools for Conviviality. We also discuss learning networks, social media in the state, iatrogenic harm in the medical-industrial complex, sex, gender, and economic neutering, and Illich's conceptions of conviviality, austerity, and utopia. If you want to learn more about the philosophy of Ivan Illich, you can take the Illich course from Nina herself, which can be found at illichcourse.com. Agora Politics listeners can use the coupon code AGORA to get 30% off the course. If you like this conversation and decide to take the course, using this code will not only give you a hefty discount on the material, but will also help you support the show. All right, with that being said, I give you my conversation with Nina Power. Welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Nita Power. Nita Power is a cultural critic, social theorist, philosopher, and translator. His upcoming work, What Do Men Want, will be out later this year. Nina, welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you. Uh, and, uh, you know, our main topic today, I think, is very timely, and we're going to get into some reasons why that might be which is your upcoming course that you have uh, at our mutual friend, Justin Murphy's uh, site, IndieThinkers.org. You'll be teaching a course uh, pretty soon here on Ivan Illich, uh, the Catholic philosopher and thinker. He touches a number of really important topics that seem to be very, very prevalent today, as prevalent as ever, uh, among them education, gender and sexuality, um, very, various other um, strains of thought of his as well, including various kinds of uh, an interesting approach to anti-imperialism that I think he actually lived in terms of his uh, his 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 not not only his his words but also his deeds and actions and the, the lifestyle and, and various choices that he that he made in terms of institutional associations. So really, someone who lived, you know, what he said instead of just simply putting those words out there, but. I'm going to let you uh, take over a little bit more yourself here. And uh, my first question for you, Nina Power, is why Ivan Illich and why now? Why, what makes him timely for the moment that we're going through? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think I would say overwhelmingly it's because of his critical relation to the institution as such. And in his work and like you say, also his practice, um, he was... You know, he was in the church, but he was also uh, constantly critical of the church's mission, um, both in terms of its kind of actual missionary activity, but also about what it represented and how it was dealing with the incarnation. And I think because of his kind of um, intuitive, critical, but deeply kind of felt, heartfelt um, belonging to the church, and he wanted to kind of um, ensure its continuity, but in a kind of changing world. But his, I suppose, realization about the, the problems and the limitations of the church as this kind of great um, bearer of modernity. And for Illich, Christianity and modernity are kind of inextricable. Um, modernity, in a way, follows from the church, as does as do all institutions. So Illich is famous um, in particular for his work on education, his book called Deschooling Society, um, in which he kind of looks at the, if you like, the, the apparatus of um, schooling and all of the kind of ideological effects. Um, but he does this also for for medicine, um, for um, yeah, the question of, of gender, also literacy, um, also technology or tool use. And basically he kind of systematically goes through all of the major institutions in the West um, under the aegis of his motto, 
which he he kind of has as his watchword throughout his career. And somebody like David Cayley, who's an amazing commentator on Illich, who I spoke to, had the honour of speaking to recently, um, points out that this phrase, which is basically uses in Latin, but translates as the corruption of the best is the worst. And this is Illich's watchword. So basically, he's looking at, if you like, the perversion of institutions, the way in which um, every institution that sets up with a, a series of aims or goals um, ultimately and perhaps inevitably becomes perverse, becomes its oppos opposite. And it's almost like this highly rigorous account of like clown world, you know, mm. this idea of like that everything is uh, inverted or perverted. And you often get this uh, idea of clown world as almost as a kind of joke, like everything is upside down. Um, but in a way that is kind of Illich's um, position. Like it's a very, very finely worked out, um, obviously before everyone was talking about clown world. Um, mm. But this 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 attempt, if you like, to understand how institutions um, go wrong and and why they go wrong. And I think this is extremely relevant now to go back to your original question, really, is because we I think we've never seen such widespread mistrust and, you know, uh, quite um, correct mistrust, let's say, in all of the major institutions from government to education. And I think the last, um, you know, to to medicine, to um, to journalism and the last sort of year and a half of the lockdown, I think, has really um, exacerbated or accelerated this growing suspicion and mistrust of those who are supposed to, you know, tell us the truth, supposed to govern us, supposed to teach us, supposed to look after us and so on. Um, so I think that that understanding of corruption and that desire for a better life, a life that is a spiritual life, a life that is um, a thoughtful um, and communal life. And Illich's concern is always with the um, how we can be together with the convivial, you know, as opposed to this, um, you know, highly technological, uh, surveilled, atomized, uh, materialist uh, universe that we're all sort of increasingly somehow compelled to participate in, um, which has been speeded up by the the lockdowns and and, you know, uh, all of these things. So I think basically Illich's time is very, very ripe. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so that's a, a good place to start. And I don't think we're going to necessarily approach all of his uh, ideas uh, chronologically, at least in the way that they were published. Um, that being said, I do want to make sure there's some, uh, you know, logical order in which we maybe try to approach some of these ideas. So, for example, the idea of, um, of uh, you know, institutional, um, you know, corruption or uh, a certain amount of uh, just natural, you know, life cycle of institutions, you might say, that comes about, I think, for, for, for Illich, from my understanding, comes a lot from this idea, as you mentioned in the beginning of your answer there, uh, that many of the institutions that we now know of, as a particular their European manifestations come out of the, the Catholic Church. Do you want to explain briefly sort of his um, his intuitions and his propositions about the way in which the Catholic Church gave rise to many of the institutions that we now know of today that he's putting critiques on that we may think of as wholly secular inventions or in some case even industrial creations? Yes, I think the reason why he can do this and trace this kind of history back, and he's not the only one, of course. I mean, there are several historians and others who would trace, if you like, the history of Europe or the West, you know, through the church and, and vice versa. But I suppose it's because at the level at which Illich is thinking, he's always very, very attentive to the idea of bureaucracy in particular. And so, you know, when he sort of starts writing, even in the 50s, but particularly late 60s, early 70s, his kind of major works are from the early 1970s. Um, he looks at the church and he sees um, bureaucracy. You know, he sees that it is this kind of gigantic machine that, you know, is producing missionaries that is trying to kind of um, you know, take over certain things in certain ways. It, you know, it, it employs a lot of its potential priesthood in the in the name of kind of uh, organizing and logistics and and all of these kinds of things and everything like a, a large institution or ma you know massive institution would do. Um, and I think he he takes that kind of um, 
I suppose, recognition of the bureaucratic impulse, even in something as spiritual, you know, supposedly spiritual as um, the Catholic Church, and then applies that to every other institution. And I think, so for example, if you're in the UK, you know, we have the National Health Service, which in many ways is a wonderful thing. You know, I mean, Americans are often very um, jealous of the, the National Health Service for very, very obvious reasons. Um, and there are many, many things to celebrate about it. Um, at the same time, it, it, it's also being privatised in, increasingly, but it's, it's also a gigantic bureaucracy and it employs basically almost like, uh, like more than a million people, you know. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, it's kind of has this dimension too and it's kind of famously um suffers from its own bureaucracy so i i think there's also this sense of you know there's a critique of hierarchy right so there's a critique of bureaucracy there's also a kind of critique of hierarchy and homogeneity and the one thing that illich especially in his early career when he's more um functionally in the church as it were like he later kind of becomes more of an antagonist and a thorn in the side of the church um, but one of the things that he's recognizing in the missionary um, programs is basically almost like a, a, a an exporting or an importing, I suppose, of U.S. hegemony, right, in the form of the Catholic priests. So they're going to different parts of the, the world, which may or may not be Catholic already, and in a way imposing a particular um, culture, a particular way of doing things, which is not very attentive to the the people who actually live there, who may be, are obviously practicing in their own way and thinking and, and so on. And he compares this so almost to the like the exporting of coke, you know. Mm. So he's he's also part of this in a way kind of anti-colonialist movement, um, which I think is importantly different perhaps from some of the concerns around cultural appropriation and so on that we might have today. You know, I think, you know, Illich is really thinking about the real on the ground consequences of these sorts of programs and is very, very critical uh, of them. And so he's obviously completely attentive to the damage something like the church can do with, if it betrays its spiritual mission and if it betrays its, um, I suppose, commitment to incarnation and 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 so on and, and to the reality, I suppose, of people's lives in all of these different kind of contexts. Um, and then, yeah, the same would go for all of these other institutions, basically, that it's mm -hmm. the homogenizing, hierarchizing um, um, and yeah, bureaucratizing tendencies, I guess, that he's he's most suspicious of. So I guess, yeah, you, you could say that he cultivates a general mistrust of institutions and centralized authority and the way in which that tends to um, create perverse incentives or the individuals that are inhabiting them. Would that be a good way to say it? Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's, so it's exactly, it's not that individual people are uh, necessarily have malign motives, right? You know, and, and we know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions and, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, even today or especially today, perhaps you have a lot of people who want to be good, who want to do the right thing, who want to be moral, who want to be seen in that way. Um, but perhaps sometimes what they're doing is, in fact, actually causing harm. And we're all capable of making mistakes in this way. You know, it's a, it's a human tendency. But I think so it, the question then becomes if it's not really at the individual level that these things happen, but how do individuals get kind of caught in the ratchets and the cogs of machines and systems such that they then reproduce the damage or create damage? Um, in different ways, um, despite or even because they are trying to do good or be good. And, and in a way, the missionary is the kind of archetypal figure, if you like, of the person who's literally attempting to bring good news or, <laughs> mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to get into then a little bit of, I guess, we'll, we'll start with the, the, the one work that he's arguably the most known for, uh, which is de-schooling society. Uh, 1971, yes. And uh, this is his uh, famous, now famous critique of education. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's making a very bold claim in that book, uh, which is that the uh, the standard um, system of uh, education through mass schooling is simply not going to be able to achieve the kind of aims that it seeks to achieve. Uh, and that ultimately some sort of new system he presents it in the uh, in the form of in terms of practical solutions uh you know a sort of peer-to-peer -peer like learning yeah. networks 
which yeah. are now more um, uh, closer to us technologically than they would have been at the time for him. Um, but fundamental to this is the claim that uh, that education is sort of fundamentally broken in a particular way. And he calls for the disestablishment of schools more generally. Do you want to talk a little bit about the core thesis uh, in his most famous work? And maybe we can get into some uh, some points on de-schooling society. Yes, um, you know, I should, I suppose it, we should be um, clear that in a way, um, Illich is also constantly critical of himself as well. So so he revisits his ideas at various points. So even though de-schooling society, for example, and medical nemesis are very polemical books, he will always later revisit his theses in the light of shifts and transformations. So you know, that he follows up um, de-schooling with after de-schooling what? And, you know, to respond, if you like, to some of the criticisms, which um, primarily around the idea that, okay, he presents this very um, convincing uh, argument for for the disestablishment of schools, but doesn't in a way present enough of an alternative, right? So he's, he, I would just like to say, first of all, that he's very, very fully aware of, I guess, um, the limits of his own critique and, and, and constantly seeks to build on them. And, you know, so... I guess one of the ideas is that if we have an idea of education, right, we, we must think that it's for something, right, maybe for, for an image of man, let's say, and he talks about this, like, are we trying to create particular kinds of subjects? Well, undoubtedly, you know, perhaps these are um, critical subjects, you know, people who think for themselves, perhaps they're, you know, human beings who have something like a moral education, who try to um, understand their own social role, for example, um, who have a sense of their relation to their environment and their context and community and all of those sorts of things. And we would have to say that this is very a very small part, if any, of the contemporary education system, those kinds of ideas of a certain kind of social embeddedness. You know, what we have is a kind of homogenizing system that tries to churn out, if you like, uh, almost interchangeable and again, homogenous types of people, all of whom have had more or less the same education, um, regardless, if you like, of people's skills or aptitudes or desires. And one of the things I think that the Illich, you know, because in many ways he is a traditionalist, and this is kind of interesting to note, like he's a radical traditionalist. Like he's he's not someone that you can simply describe as like a, a left liberal social constructivist or anything like that. Like he's absolutely not. He's always looking to the past in many, many ways. And one of the things that I think he's responding to is this um, destruction or elimination of what we might call social role. And one of my um, colleagues, Benjamin Studebaker, is always talking about this um, idea that what we have in modernity is, if you like, the collapse of social role so that people don't know their place. So and we also have a kind of hierarchy of values for the kinds of activities that people engage in. So, for example, in our current society, if you are a uh, an Uber driver or a nurse or a nanny or something like this. These are very, you know, um, service roles that are extremely uh, important, um, particularly those jobs that involve caring for other people. But they're also regarded as not being worth much in, a, in another sense. Right. Economically, we don't reward those roles in a particular uh, in a particularly good way um, that and what we have instead is a society that kind of encourages more and more people, and we've seen this over the last 10, 20 years, to get more and more degrees, particularly in the middle class, and to try to sort of um, outcompete one another in some kind of ridiculous, again, sort of screaming hierarchy of horror, um, in which sort of any tactic is, is uh, I don't know, invoked in order to sort of help your child get ahead or something. Mm -hmm. And... And actually, then you end up with a surplus of highly overeducated people, basically, who actually then also don't have a role and become kind of very unhappy. Um, there aren't enough jobs at that level either. And yes. so, <laughs> and, you know, people have written about the PMC problem and, and luxury beliefs and all of these kinds of things. Um, so what I think Illich is, one of the things Illich is trying to, I, I suppose, go back to or rethink is the question of value and where we place value in a society. And I mean, one of the reasons why I think de-schooling society is incredibly relevant now is because of the, the shift to homeschooling, 
that we see. And this has again been exacerbated or accelerated by the, the lockdown in which we've seen, I think, a lot of families realise that schooling that their child was receiving and they can see the kind of lessons that are being given on Zoom and all of these sorts of things are just like woefully irrelevant, uh, inadequate and, you know, possibly even damaging in some ways. And I think what we'll see and what we are seeing is far more of a return to a kind of older system of you know, private schooling, homeschooling, uh, maybe getting in an, a tutor or something to teach a few kids, something like this. But, you know, a kind of uh, decentralising of the curriculum, mm -hmm. which I think is very uh, potentially very positive, actually, um, because we don't need, I suppose, again, a, a totally homogenised people. Like, why should everyone stay in school and be t taught the same thing to a particular age? It's not... Um, relevant if we had instead a society in which everyone was integrated and valued in their different roles and status and and capacities and skills and in fact those people who were actually um helping more people were valued more so let's say the i don't know the carpenter the the skilled person was valued more than let's say a ceo of a company or a bank or a startup or whatever um then we would have a society that was based on real values and real practices, you know, rather than one that's based on the totally irrelevant, increasingly irrelevant um, certificates mm. um, that that merely indicate that you've you've got you've passed some um, some tests in some set of ideas that are um, in a way unreal, you know, that don't bear any relation to reality. Yeah. So I, I want to go off a few points on what what you said there. Um, the, the first being that what I'm hearing in all of this is that there's a kind of disintegration present in the way that we do education, uh, not only in, again, as you alluded to, the, you know, the pace of education and the type of content uh, that a student is exposed to uh, while, they're, while they're in school, particularly while you're in primary school and, second, and going into, even going into secondary in many cases, uh, but also in terms of what exactly it's 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 preparing you to do after you're done, right? There's no, um, you know, we, we we may get into some of the his his economic critiques a little bit later. But uh, you know, as you pointed out, with these various jobs that you're going into, it's not clear exactly uh, what the status level is anymore of someone who's you know a nurse uh, versus uh, you know a baker or mm -hmm. Uh, you know, an architect or something along those lines. I mean, obviously, I guess we, we primarily would would assign certain jobs as as being high value almost uh, all the time, things like doctor, lawyer, but even that is largely based on, you know, really how much money they're making, right? And so when you compare that to the CEO, well, the CEO will, would generally be considered a more high status job, uh, even if maybe the actual effects that that CEO in particular is having on society might be worse. <laughs> uh, you know, than the Uber driver, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, it, obviously, all of these things are debatable. The point being that there, there's a kind of uh, disattachment from the actual, like you said, the role that you're actually going to play. And I think one of the things when we think about reforming education and we think about things like vocations, which is a word that I'd like to bring back into vogue, mm -hmm. uh, there has to be some sort of... Uh, I guess, mutual understanding within a, a, a social group about the purpose of someone's role and the meaning that it provides, not only to them, but also to the group as a whole. Um, and so maybe that's just a consequence of us being in, you know, large population centers. Uh, you know, as you said, that there are lots of different uh, new modes of education that are arising as a result of, of the lockdowns and families wanting to innovate around that. Um, and I, I I'm, have some ideas myself about how we might uh, try to, for example, reinvigorate the liberal arts, you know, mm -hmm. provide more of a classical liberal arts curriculum to more mm -hmm. students. Uh, this is something that could be done very cheaply here in America, at least most of the schools that are doing this. Uh, and there are many schools that are doing it are still charging close to $50,000 a year to do so. Yeah. Um, so obviously that doesn't make sense for the kind of jobs that they can expect coming out of those programs. Uh, and if this knowledge is truly valuable in terms of 
its inherent value and the way that it shapes our citizens and the kind of reflections that they're going to have coming out of a program like that. I'm not saying everyone needs to go through a great books program to get a good education. That's just an example that I wanted to bring up. Then there's clearly a mismatch there between the um, the roles that are provided for for those kinds of citizens, if we want to cultivate those kinds of citizens. And uh, on the other hand, the cost and all the other um, various hoops that you have to jump through in order to attain that. And so, you know, any kind of way that I think we can make things more attainable or have the price more in line with the actual uh, value being offered, uh, or maybe even get, you know, hopefully on on the um, on the employment side, actually get get certain aspects of the economy or certain business models in place that might allow compensation to be made adequately for these kinds of things. Uh, I think is a is a good move. Um, that being said, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, this idea of learning networks that he talks about yeah. in deschooling society. Um, so he says, well, I, I'm going to bring up a quote from Illich here real quickly. He says that a good educational system should have three purposes. One, it should provide all who want to learn with access to available resources at any time in their lives, which I think we're getting closer to with the Internet. I agree. Uh, it, it's definitely moving in that direction, although I think actually what's going to be more important going forward is going to be curation of that content mm -hmm. um, because searching it out is, is becoming more difficult and discerning the quality is also becoming a, a monumental task in some cases. Uh, empowering all who want to share what they know to find those who want to learn it from them. And finally, furnish all who want to present an issue to the public with the opportunity to make their challenge known. Okay, so on the second point there, empower all who want to share what they know to find those who want to learn it from them. Again, we're getting more and more technological and infrastructure type tools specifically online that I think are really allowing that. Part of what you're doing with this course uh, is that second part there. But also, uh, I wanted to bring up this last point, which is <clears throat> give uh, you know all who want to present an issue to the public with the opportunity to make their challenge known. I think that latter point actually is moving uh, perhaps in the opposite direction of many of the first two points, particularly with uh, governments and corporations being more concerned about issues like misinformation spreading online and various arguments that are going on around censorship. Yeah. Um, do you think that this uh, last point of the purpose of education that Illich proposes is uh, is something that we need to be considering when we're talking about sort of making more educational resources uh, available to people, making sure that those who have the knowledge are able to find ways of, you know, appropriately uh, transferring that knowledge to, to new students. Um, does this aspect of sort of public critique or the ability of the everyman, let's say, to present uh, criticism is that something that you know you think that we sh we should be wary of in terms of keeping that line open because it does seem to me like there are uh, there's an attempt right now to sort of close a lot of the ranks uh, around you know the the abundance of information that the internet has provided seems to be having a, a counteracting effect where there's a kind of uh, urge to sort of close the pay playpen if you might say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have to say I, I completely agree with your analysis and also with your interpretation of Illich in the present. I think this is kind of where I've reached <laughs> as well um, with these things. And I, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I agree that, that his idea of the learning networks is is basically come to fruition, right? Like, you know, you can go on YouTube and it, particularly, well, if you want to learn anything, actually, you have often extremely high quality, enthusiastic videos that you can access so long as you have internet access, right? I mean, that's we shouldn't forget that that's also a, a, a you know, a, a first step. Um, you know, you can watch videos of someone teaching you how to to make something, how to fix something, how to, you know, and they're often so well done. They're, they're people who are sharing their knowledge and their skills, um, you know, not only intellectual, practical, everything really. Um, and they're doing it out of this love of um, sharing, you know, and there's something so beautiful about that, you know, that people um, want to. And I think this is this is what human beings are like, like they want to share um, skills and knowledge um, that they have. And, and so I totally agree that 
on the one hand, we are presented with this actual real possibility for realising learning networks and precisely these, you know, your podcast, I mean, uh, these sorts of para-academic or post-academic courses that we're running and many other people are kind of doing now, which are not even really opposed to the existing institutions, but really are very different from them. You know, they're much cheaper, they're they're motivated by uh, the will of anyone who wants to participate. You know, they're, they're much more democratic, you don't need any uh, um, qualifications to attend them. They are purely based on enthusiasm and a desire to learn. And, and, and in that sense, of course, you can be connected with, you know, the eight people in the world who are interested in this one thing or the 40 people or whatever, you know, and there's something absolutely incredible about that, right? Like any interest, any figure, any skill, um, yeah, can be mapped and you can find the person or people who, who you, who were, are also interested in the same thing. Um, so I think we are basically there in certain ways and in, in terms of the learning networks and the kind of alternative to the existing education system. And, and since Illich's writing, you know, we have to note that those um, university systems um, have become even more um, insane in terms of their cost, the debt incurred, the, you know, the lack of value for money in terms of what you actually get, the, the lack of um, uh, employment consequences, um, you know, the the frustration and the disappointment that they generate and, and all of these. And I speak as someone, you know, who was employed in university for, for more than 10 years and um, all of those problems of bureaucracy as well. You know, even in the time I was there, they became more bureau bureaucratic, bureaucratic and the fees went up and, you know, so on. So that that's what that's what happened. And and in a way, probably, I think we will see the collapse of of many universities in the next little, little while because of the lack of foreign students and so on. And but but on your third point, um, in terms of the the public thing, and it, yeah, it's it's there's also another point, I suppose, about the um, which is more a kind of Agambenian suspicion, I suppose, towards the and Illichian, you know, and he's very Illichian thinker, which would be, I suppose, the suspicion towards anything that takes place at a distance you know so for all of the beauty of the the online global networks and talking to people in different countries it doesn't compare in a way to the intimate in-person dialogic conversation or the small group you know so i think well it, this relates to the third point which is the point about the public and you know the discernment as well like the idea of how how to think critically and in a um discerning way in a discriminatory way let's say about what is useful what is good what is beautiful what is true what is uh, important to learn and what perhaps isn't and the quality of learning and, and of course that does become harder for everybody when there's just a kind of plethora of information particularly when a um one ideal one ideology dominates and mm. other voices are are being screened out or not shown or hidden from you or shadow banned or you know and and this is a problem so i've i've said repeatedly in in articles that um we cannot um make everything digital and that would include original material so books i think we probably are heading for a, another well we're on the we're in a, another period of of serious censorship um so that people should kind of hang on to the analog copies that they have, the real copies that they have of books, particular books, even when we've got access to information all over the world. I don't trust these platforms to preserve particular texts that they will deem to be, you know, um, inappropriate in our age, if you see what I mean. So that so there's that that point. So I don't think we should, you know, ever get rid of books and records and those those real objects. Um, and at, at the same time, we shouldn't also get rid of the in-person conversations, the private conversations, the non-recorded discussions um, and those kind of uh, intimate forms of thinking with others um, that are embodied and present. Um, not everything should be online. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I, I think we should be increasingly suspicious. I mean, I was just reading yesterday about how like PayPal have signed up with the ADL in order yes. to kind of potentially de-platform anyone with extremist views, but obviously one person's definition of an extremist. And I have been trying to tell the left this for quite a few years now that, uh, you know, if you don't defend people who are defending free speech and saying things that you don't like, they will come for you next. And we're seeing this, right? So anyone, you know, if you're a revolutionary Marxist and you're calling for the overthrow of the government, I mean, that's all very nice. But 
you know, they, they will come for you, right? Like, just because you've agreed that you think anyone who's been deemed to be right wing, even if they are or not, uh, and you're like, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, I disagree with them. They're evil people. They're bad people. You know, it, it there's no sense in which these platforms are going to stop at that, you know, and, and all, all they've done, of course, as we've seen, is expand the definition of who counts as right wing. Um, and, you know, I was reading another document yesterday uh, from the European Commission, I think, which was talking about how uh, humour um, is basically potentially very dangerous and that we should, you know, instead of thinking that humour is like a release valve, we should actually... Unauthorised laughing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, all of these things um, are, are obviously becoming more and more um, constrained. And these platforms, you know, these platforms basically are the state. Now, you know, there is no difference between the state and these platforms, and it would be ridiculous to think of them only as private companies who can do what they like. You know, they they are absolutely dominant. They make more money than most countries. Um, they basically are uh, reality in many ways. They're not reality at the same time, right? Because reality is us, our, our bodies, the people we know going outside the sun, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our spiritual being, our soul and everything else. Yes. Um, but you know what I mean? You know, they're, they're very, very um, powerful agencies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we should be thinking very carefully about how these form, these plat platform censorship and big tech censorship um, is is now feeding in very obviously into a potential social credit system um, and all of these things. I don't think it's paranoid or conspiratorial to think that we are basically about five minutes from you know, linking everything everyone said online to how they are treated more generally, yes. economically, socially and politically. Well, it's certainly on the menu. So <laughs> hopefully we choose not to take that route. But it's, yes. looking, like, it's looking like there. I mean, yeah, it's looking like uh, there are there are a lot of eyes on uh, on the Chinese model right now. And hopefully we can we can bring bring the forces together to resist that as best we can. Um, yeah, I've been outspoken about, you know, uh, going all the way back to Alex Jones, you know, when he got uh, when he got shut off by multiple platforms simultaneously. And, you know, he even had financial services, you know, try to close his bank accounts and things like that. And yeah. uh, really what you're doing when you're denying things like financial services, this, you know, the particular partnership with ADL and PayPal is is concerning is you're, you're really just making it impossible for someone to have a livelihood uh, unless they're willing to sort of tow the party line, whatever that happens to be that day. And that I think points again to your, um, you know, your, your sort of exhortation to the leftists, uh, particularly anti-government radicals, whatever kind of strain of, of leftists you are, that, uh, you know, it's, it's inevitable that these tools are going to be used against you if they're being used uh, against people who are uh, dissenting at the moment for, for whatever reason. So you always have to be wary of that. Um, that being said, I want to get into a little bit of his uh, concerns uh, pertaining to medical ethics, because mm -hmm. I think that's also something that is uh, unusually timely given our, our moment, which is uh, that Ivan Illich is often credited with sort of popularizing the idea of iatrogenics, that is uh, yeah. harm caused by medical professionals uh, that maybe otherwise uh, wouldn't have happened. Um, so it gets brought up that uh, iatrogenic harm is something like the third cause of, of, of you know, all mortality, uh, depending on who's counting and, and, and how you want to sort of um, calculate those statistics. But obviously, with the uh, with the pandemic and, and, and the lockdowns and various measures that were taken, particularly uh, intubating people on, you know, um, <clears throat> breathing machines, uh, that proved to be pretty pretty damaging for a lot of patients and obviously different therapies and methods that we've learned since then have caused that to be sort of a, a tool of last resort. But I think that's a, a very prominent example, a recent example of iatrogenic harm, which Illich uh, originally pointed out. So do you want to just get into his sort of critique of the medical establishment here? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I would like to say that um, Illich revisits his thoughts later on, like there's a Lancet um, issue like about 10 years after Limits to Medicine or Medical Nemesis um, has different titles um, in which he kind of queries some of the, the claims that he makes or revises them slightly. And he kind of points out that, um, for example, health has become yet another fetish, actually. So because in a way, in the earlier book, he's kind of opposing an idea of like uh, life and health to the, you know, iatrogenesis and the kind of medical caused harm and the, you know, the mass 
um, dosing of people, which has only increased, of course, when we're talking about anything from antidepressants to birth control to, you know, lifelong forms of medicalization, which are extremely, extremely dominant in the West. Um, that that actually you, we have to be careful. We don't just replace one um, one kind of yeah institutional fetish with another, right? So that when and when he talks about then therefore that like the health industry and this idea of self care and and how that it again has become kind of like uh, a new uh, new fetish object. But to go back to the the kind of limits to medicine or medical nemesis um, era, um, yes, I mean I think there is very much. I would say underlying his thoughts about um, about health and medicine is um, partly a sense of the tragic, which he thinks has also been lost. So that that we increasing, and I think we've seen this in the pandemic, where there's almost been a kind of neurotic breakdown at the idea of death and the idea of suffering, and that the West has in a way become caught up in a kind of um, uh, almost like a hermetically sealed worship of health and security and safety for its own sake right at the expense of um, risk openness life and so on and this is something that david cayley has revisited in the in the during the pandemic very well like he thinks with illich about this and i think he's one of the few philosophers or thinkers that is actually um paying attention to what's going on i think philosophers and thinkers have in general been completely pathetic in terms of their response to the pandemic as if there's no time to think and that everyone's too scared and we can't ask any bigger questions about what it means that we've just imprisoned half the world for a year or you know that and it's still going of, yeah exactly i mean like somehow people have stopped thinking um you know i think the frequency of fear that has been generated has um trapped a lot of minds and yeah in any case so i suppose um it's it's the question on fundamentally i suppose of, of what kind of life do we want you know do we want a life that is purely about preventing harm you know that there's does everything to protect everyone from everything all the time mm. you know and that, that, that no one is ever exposed to anything negative or bad and you know or anything that could upset them you know and and we've obviously seen these tendencies grow massively whether we're talking about exposure to language, exposure to other people, you know, other people's behavior, whatever, the, the, the normal stuff of life, yes. you know. And and so I think what Illich is trying to, to point to, I suppose, is, a, is another collective way of thinking about health, which, which also takes it away from the individual. You know, the idea that there is, which is again, very important when we're thinking about things like um, illnesses and pandemic and, and spreading and so on. But the emphasis can't just be on this idea of like the atomized individual for whom there is like a tailor made regimen of drugs or whatever. Um, you know, that, that health is a collective concern and, and it's related to questions of care and community. And, and it's often the case, as we know, that actually not intervening medically is often the best thing to do in many, many cases. You know, if you have a you know, uh, a medical system that is rewarded for intervention, right, mm. that gets money because it performs surgeries or gives people drugs, you know, and the whole big pharma question. Um, then, of course, doctors and all of these people, like you were talking about perverse incentives. Well, they're not perverse, actually, from the standpoint of a capitalist economy, but incentives that basically say if you perform more surgeries and get more people on drugs, you will be better rewarded, you know. Of course, then that's what's going to happen. Whereas if you say, look, going outside and doing exercise and being in the sun and drinking water and eat, eating healthily is yeah. basically going to stop the vast majority of people most of the time from getting very sick. And where they do, we can then help them. That's not very profitable. <laughs> yes, I think he's really pointing there to uh, sort of a sterilization, right, through, yeah. through, through the worship of sort of the health industrial complex, I'll call it. Um, and that, you know... What is sterilization at its core? It's lifelessness. And yeah. really what we're doing is we're sacrificing, again, as you alluded to, the the aspects of, of living, right, of, of being together, of, you know, socially interacting, for example, with yeah. other humans in close proximity. Uh, if what you're doing is you're staying alive longer and but but through that staying alive longer, you're doing less of the things that life is about, then it becomes a question of like, well, what kind of life are we preserving here? 
Um, exactly. And, you know, you can live in a, a, a bubble if you want, like a literal bubble. Like um, I, I know there's the, the bubble boy famous for having some sort of immunological condition. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's like if we're all just going to trap ourselves in our apartments and never go outside again, uh, and that's sort of we're extending life, then you, it, it does become a question of like, what exactly are we doing? Well, yeah, and also the, the, the point is that that won't actually extend your life. You'll become sick, you know, if you yeah. don't go outside and right. go in the sun. And, you know, actually it does make you sick. I mean, you know, like one of the things I was just writing about this morning is like, you know, the, the so in the UK, but elsewhere, I guess the pattern would be the same. If you are obese, you you suffer from COVID much worse, right? It, it massively increases your chances of, of not surviving COVID, right? And so then you would think that, prevention is better than a cure and, and that the government should be investing all its money and basically trying to get people to lose weight and encourage them and go outside. And but no, you know, we have the opposite encourage, which is like stay indoors and order takeaway, you know, like that's the dominant <laughs> culture. And some uh, person who's being paid like three pound fifty an hour will deliver you your pizza. I mean, like, you know, of course, so, so of course, it's again, like the institutions are not even doing what they say they are supposed to do. Like, you know, the government is not pre pre preserving your life. It's not prolonging anything. It's it's you know actively destroying your health. Um, mm. And I think when people realise that their health belongs to them in the first place and not to the state, this is like a major breakthrough. I think, you know, um, and I guess you can see uh, a lot your of your health isn't a public good. <laughs> it's a private good. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. So it's like our obsession with public health is sort of like everyone's health becomes someone else's concern and uh it's all it's chiefly your concern <laughs> yeah exactly and and you know and that but that's also a social good i mean if you are if you if you've you know if you're not addicted if you're not um eating badly and if you're in a good mental and physical state you are much better able to look after yourself and also look after other people right you know so there is a social it's not selfish to you know, be healthy. In fact, it's good, better for everyone. It's completely upbuilding and social. But that's the opposite of the image of health. Yeah, that's almost like um, derogated or delegated to the state somehow. Yes. So we talked about education. We talked a little bit about health. Uh, I want to kind of circle back to uh, a little bit of the points we made earlier about economics, um, in particular, the way in which uh, Ivan Illich relates them to gender. Mm -hmm. um, so he has been noted uh, in well previous conversations that I've listened to with 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 you um, for having brought up certain aspects of the way in which our economy or economic incentives treat gender. In particular, with all these systems, we're really talking about kind of the impersonal nature of these bureaucracies and how they kind of uh, decontextualize and impersonalize human beings from not only from one another, but also from themselves in particular ways. Um, and his views on gender are very much related to this idea, um, from what I can tell, uh, which is that basically there's a kind of, uh, he called it, I believe, an economic neutering that goes on. Right? Yeah. And, and, and the necessity for uh, having a sort of uniform and interchangeable workforce uh, creates a kind of downward pressure uh, on gender differentiation to sort of towards towards homogenization, which I guess we're sort of seeing manifested more strongly now than uh, than previously. Do you want to talk a little bit about his his views on gender and how they're kind of related to these sort of economic imperatives that we have? Yeah, I mean, I, I should say in the interest of, of humility that I'm still working through <laughs> Illich's book on gender, because I think in a way it's the... Mm, I don't know, one of the more difficult ones in a way to readdress. I mean, it, the, his work on gender um, in the early 80s was kind of what got him cancelled, so to speak, at the time. Like it, it kind of um, undermined his reputation as as somebody who was, you know, obviously a tr traditionalist and, and a kind of strange renegade Catholic, but in some ways compatible with a kind of left liberal feminist approach. And, and though even though this book is, I would say, very feminist in many ways, he was roundly attacked for it. Um, in ways that I think it, you know, one of the things I want to do on the course and in ge more generally is actually go back to that whole debate and see what is living and what is dead in the, the critique of Illich on gender. Um, but yeah, I mean, so broadly, you know, on the question of neutering, I think it's it's kind of manifestly obvious that 
in a primarily service economy in particular, it doesn't particularly matter what the sex of the person doing the job is from the standpoint of capital. And I wrote about this a long time ago, like in 2009 or so. Um, so what that creates is a kind of neutered or neutral subject, right? So where, where sexual difference doesn't kind of um, mean anything from the standpoint of a particular economy, except where it does, like except where it reemerges. In fact, um, whether that be at the kind of concentration of women in particular jobs or um, even in like sexual harassment cases at work where sex suddenly becomes back on the, <laughs> the horizon, um, even though the, the, I don't know, the contemporary office is maybe gender neutral in certain ways um, otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think, you know, one thing to to sort of, I suppose, understand is Illich, like to go back to the beginning, is always trying to trace the history of modern institutions off the back of his understanding of history in general, but also of the church, right? So it's it's looking backwards to some extent at a time pre the Industrial Revolution or pre-modernity, they're not quite the same things necessarily, but where, you know, sexual difference, me, or, you know, and he, the, the other the other difficulty in talking about it's a gender- a little dated, yes. It, it, it is, yeah, is that he's, not necessarily using gender in either of the two ways that we might use it today, uh, one of which would be synonymous with sex, which is also a problem and has caused a great deal of confusion. I think often people don't want to use the word sex because of its other meaning. Like they, you know, so... There's another confusion there. Yeah, so there's multiple confusions. And, and you know, for the second way, feminist, gender meant, you know, social expectation based on sex. Um, and now gender also means like an inner feeling or you know gender identity so so it's a it's a really tricky word and and the relation between sex and gender you know is obviously very very emotive and complicated discussion at the moment um so again we'd have to also then situate illich the, the i don't know the the progress of that word and the way he's using it in the contemporary context so um but i think one of the things that he is trying to identify and in a way mourn is the lack of differentiation that the meaningful differentiation between men and women um when you when we move to the kind of econ the economistic um destruction of the relevance of sex and and so i think one of the potential problems with that that maybe caused illich to be critiqued is that it could appear reactionary in the sense that he you know might be saying we need to go back to a sexually more sexually differentiated world and but i actually wonder if there isn't a kind of future radicalism actually in that um uh that that discussion like i think it's not finished i i think that illich the the book on gender isn't a false step necessarily i think that the consequences of what illich is claiming have not yet been worked out and that includes for me personally like i haven't kind of quite got my head around exactly what's going on in gender but this is something i want to do in the course and afterwards so yeah i have limited things to say here yet but i think you know when we're talking about the economization of everything you know we think about oikos you know oikos used to be opposed to polis and now we have a generalized oikos, right? So what does it mean when the household becomes everything? And then, you know, political economy is the kind of potentially dangerous, well, actually dangerous fusion of, of both polis and oikos, right? So the market dominates the political. Um, so I think Illich is going to be useful, hopefully, with rethinking all this. But um, yeah, it, on my way to getting there at the moment. Well, hopefully. I will say that one potential future uh, way of looking at it is non-reactionary. Uh, mm -hmm. is that uh, we know, for example, that in more gender egalitarian societies, what you get is you get increased uh, sexual dimorphism in terms of revealed preferences. So the types of jobs, uh, the types of activities that uh, either sex chooses to do uh, becomes more exacerbated to what you would assume would be their, you know, whatever you want to call it, their natural baselines or, or, or whatnot. Um, those, those diverge even further in more gender egalitarian societies. Uh, which runs contrary to a lot of the narratives that it, that it's society itself uh, that causes those differences to be there. Um, so yeah. 
that's an interesting wrinkle and one way of no, maybe... I've, I've come across that before and I, you know as as you don't need to be a kind of men's rights activist to point out that you know the most dangerous job jobs are still done by men right you don't have many women like you know lining up that you might want more female ceos but you don't there are not many women who are like they're yes, not looking for uh, women bricklayers right no well i mean like i don't know you how many people are calling for like 50 50 quotas on oil rigs or whatever i mean like you know the truly really dangerous jobs <laughs> like yes. you know so yeah they, those are kind of i think they don't go away like mm -hmm. in a fully socially constructed like yeah as you say they may even uh become more obvious i guess those tendencies um so i got a few more questions for you uh i wanted to ask a little bit about his notion of conviviality mm -hmm. um because it seems to be um an aspect of um I guess I'll use the word of his sort of um, phenomenological approach to a kind of more embodied type of being. You know, we've been talking uh, throughout all these topics about his sort of uh, what you call sort of skepticism of distance, right? And a kind of preference for um, what you might say is like the local or the proximal mm -hmm. over the dis uh, over the distal. So, um, how does conviviality play a role in his sort of critique of institutions and the way in which they're affecting our, you know, our, our being or our interpersonal relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's where he talks about conviviality most explicitly is the, is the book Tools for Conviviality. Um, and this is in a way his um, attempt, this is 73, you know, his kind of most um, I don't know, productive period, um, where he is trying to think about, again, how we might live and what the nature of the human is um, in a social way, but particularly in relation to tool use. And he primarily focuses on the word tools rather than technology, because um, tools in a way is a much more grounded way of speaking about the nature of the human in a certain sense and elsewhere he'll talk about the Promethean and the Epimethean and the way in which we are in a way caught between a sort of grandiose aspiration like I guess the accelerationist project would be more kind of the tech you know a kind of techno uh, technophilic kind of uh, let's go all the way uh, thing um, and as opposed to let's say uh, questions of degrowth and deceleration and that also comes up in energy and equity when he's talking about speed and deceleration and um, and obviously these are ongoing debates, you know, where you don't have to be very interested, particularly immersed in environmental or ecological questions to to think about technology. Right. It's all tool yours to tool you. So his fundamentally very simple point about tools is is the question about whether we use them or whether they use us. Yes. You know? And the point would therefore be to ask this very simple question, but actually quite profound question. Um, is it, it, it in the first place uh, makes you very well aware, if you like, of the, the 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 difference, I suppose, between what is alive in us as individuals, but also collectively, and then what isn't alive in tool use, I suppose, in tools, right? And the, the fact that tools are used by humans for particular ends, and you know, we don't, you don't need to be obsessed with like internet addiction or whatever to to know that. Tool you, tools are very powerful, right? They exert an extremely magical force on millions of people. You know, whatever we're, we're doing, you know, tools are kind of um, magical objects in a certain way. Um, so you could say that Illich is, I suppose, proposing something like a simple, almost Luddite, you know, possible concern with the way in which things are going. And there's definitely that aspect. Um, but I would say it's kind of more than that, too, because the the question of how we are to live together, which is really a moral question and a spiritual question and potentially a religious question, a, it's a question of organisation and self-organisation. Um, he wants to use convivial in particular um, to talk about, if you like, the limits, like what would what would a socially responsible relation to the limits of technology or tool use be such that everyone would be kind of um i don't know would be be able to flourish in the best possible way and in that sense there's something very aristotelian about illich um 
and he, he takes um, particular terms from Aristotle and Aquinas in particular, like this idea of austerity, which has lots of different meanings for us now, but he means it in the sense of not being distracted, you know, which is amazing if you think about today. I mean, I grew up just before, you know, I was a, an adult before I used the internet. And so I had a childhood that, you know, okay, we had the radio and TV and stuff, but um, there was much more boredom in my childhood than there was distraction, if you like. And boredom is good. Boredom is very powerful mood. And, you know, we're often now very distracted. Like mo a lot of people are highly, highly distracted. And so this, this very simple idea of austerity, which is not a kind of pious ascetic idea at all, but rather just simply um, being in a situation where things unfold and that you're not constantly trying to avoid the present moment, right? You're having a conversation with someone and you're just letting things unfold. And um, also this idea that he has of um, eutropelia, which is graceful play playfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and he thinks that tools have the potential to destroy this, this idea, this, this idea of eutropelia. Um, you know, and he again, he relates this to sort of um, Aquinas and Aristotle and this kind of tradition of thinking about virtues and practices and behaviours. Um, so there are kind of distinct aspects, I suppose, to his idea of conviviality. And it's so it's not simply a critique of technology. And of course, he thinks that tools have their place. Right. He's not he's not saying we need to go back to some, I don't know, primitivist I ideal. It's not that at all, but it's that they have to be, we have to think about the limits of them, you know, which puts him radically at odds with, I guess, the, you know, uh, accelerationist or technophilic, let's go to Mars type movement. Well, so I would just like to say that there's a kind of uh, loss of spontaneity, I think, that he's pointing at uh, mm -hmm. in both of those conceptions of, uh, you know, values that are maybe diminished by the tools that we're currently using. Um, that is austerity, and I forget the other the other one. Eutropelia. Uh, Eutropelia, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, in that, uh, you know, if you're uh, always needing to be distracted, if you're never, like, taking a moment where you're just okay being bored for a second mm. and sitting with that boarding and, and see, that boredom and seeing what comes up, then there's a kind of loss of... Uh, whatever sponta spontaneity might come out of that. And the same thing too for, for playfulness uh, as well. You know, if there's, if you're in a situation and I know this as a, so I'm a young millennial. Uh, so <laughs> I'm much closer to sort of the digital horizon, you know, horizon than you are. Um, and, and, you know, I can tell in my own experience, the difference between uh, when I was younger and, you know, my friends and I would just be like, we're outside. Like, what are we doing today after school? Well, we're going to go outside. And then what? Well, then we're going to be outside together. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's it sounds almost stupid to propose something like that. Uh, if you're going to be going out uh, or doing something at all, uh, you have to be either be do you have to be preoccupied with something. There has to mm -hmm. be sort of a goal that you're aiming towards either that or everyone ends up inevitably just like looking at their devices anyway, because they can't stand to stand around for two seconds and, you know, come up with something to do. Um, I know, and it's insane because, you know, if somebody asked me what my image of freedom is, I would say it's like walking in a park with my friend having a conversation. Mm. You know, it has no telos, like it has no purpose, really, other than its own delight. Um, you know, and, and actually these very simple pleasures and these very simple things, I think, are precisely what are being eroded and taking, taken from us you know, through through tools, but also through various policies. You know, if you're walking outside, no one can hear what you're saying, hopefully. No one can sell you anything. You know, you're not contributing to data, the other, you know, in, and so there's almost something very uh, radical in a deep sense about those things that are non-productive from the standpoint of the current system. Yeah, they're not. You're not contributing to GDP just walking around in the woods. No, but it's the most beautiful thing, in fact. Yes. Um, so I've got sort of one uh, big question to ask you, uh, which is sort of trying to sort of tie in a lot of what we've been talking about with Ivan Illich as a whole. And of course, there's way more to the course 
that's going to be offered that we didn't even have time to get to today. Um, so I hope those of you who are listening will uh, please go and check that out. Um, that being said, Ivan Illich had his own problems with the Catholic Church throughout mm -hmm. his entire life. Uh, eventually, I wouldn't say he was excommunicated, but eventually sort of, you know, had a very strained relationship towards the end of his life with the church. Yeah. Would you consider him, and, and his critiques are all sort of have this commonality of being sort of somewhat, uh, well, you said anti-bureaucratic, but I would go as far as to say anti-institutional. Yeah, you know, yeah, You yeah. talked in the beginning about anti-hierarchical. The yeah. church is fundamentally a hierarchical institution. Uh, would you consider Ivan Illich then to be subversive? Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, but I think that kind of subversion, let's say forensic subversion, is actually very useful. I mean, I think in a, in a way there's a sense in which the core um, purpose of institutions could stand to be critiqued. Like if something is for the right thing, criticism should improve it, not destroy it. Right. And this is again goes back to the censorship point. It's like, you know, Illich's commitment to his religion is never in question, right? This is somebody who is absolutely dedicated to um, the religious life and to God and to Jesus and to incarnation, to the word and all these things. You know, this is his his vocation, you know, use this word before. You know, but there is there is a difference between the worldly and the spiritual and sometimes their intention, I suppose. And I, I think to want to identify the maybe the false paths of a of a system or the encoding of spiritual values can ultimately only strengthen them or should only strengthen them. I think when people are on thin ice and this isn't doesn't just go for religion, but for any position, really, that's when they become absolutely um, fanatical. You know, when that when people can't take any criticism of their position or any question even um, and only lash out and only attack the person asking the question, um, then this is not a secure position. Right? This is not somebody who is at ease with their beliefs and their own commitments. And, you know, we do live in a pluralist world, you know, um, which occasionally has reality attempted reality hijackings by various groups right but I mean ultimately you know you don't need to be a kind of old school liberal to defend the value of free speech and pluralism it's in a way that is what exists um, and I think it's very interesting to note and one thing that I hope we can do in the course is to identify some of the shifts in what and who is um available to attack and to criticize and who or what isn't in the period since Illich was writing um and I think when you look at the sore points in a culture in a society when you know when there are things that you're not allowed to touch then there's something going on there like there's a fault line there so and I also think the church can take these kind of critiques you know I think there's something even very positive about them ultimately well, that was great. Um, yes. And, you know, obviously the church is in a different position now than it would have been back in the mm -hmm. 70s um, uh, with regard to its stature and influence and all that. So uh, it'll be interesting to, to see where where that uh, that angle takes you later on in the course. Yeah. Uh, well, Nina, uh, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, once again, uh, you can find uh, her course uh, over at IndieThinkers.org, that's on Ivan Illich, <clears throat> starting, uh, what is it, first first week of August? Uh, yeah, August the 5th, we're having like a Q&A, so mm -hmm. people, um, you don't have to sign up then, it's just like you can ask questions about what we're doing and have a look at the syllabus and stuff, so yeah. Yeah, so tune into that definitely if you're curious about it, if this conversation has uh, piqued your interest, and Nina, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Alex, I really enjoyed that, and you were so beautifully prepared, and extremely thoughtful. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Okay.